John chapter 5, the text for this morning is John 5, 39 and 40, but we'll read from verse 31 through verse 37, uh, 47. So John chapter 5, verse 31 through 47. This also is God's holy word. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Lord has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? May we go to our God and ask for his blessings on the reading and also the preaching of his holy word. <clears throat> our almighty God, we thank you, Father, for you have given us your word. You have sent us your son, Jesus, that he is uh, the word become flesh. Father, we thank you that in him we have life. We pray, Father, that all who hear today, that we would not refuse him. For refusing him means refusing life. Father, we pray that we might embrace uh, the promises of the gospel, that we would embrace Jesus Christ, that we would cling to him trusting that he alone is the one who gives eternal life, that outside of him is only death. Father, we pray that if any have not trusted in Jesus, Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would do that mighty work that he alone is able to do. And Father, we pray that your son would be exalted, that your servant would be humbled. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> Here in today's passage, uh, we have an account of the Jewish leaders disputing with Jesus. Now, I wasn't alive then, uh, but in any situation, let me tell you, my experience is if you dispute with Jesus, you're wrong. If you dispute with Jesus, you're the one who is at fault. There's all kinds of people who get into all kinds of disputes. A certain person is angry at another person. Well, there may be justified anger. There may be some unjustified anger. But if you're disputing with Jesus, you're necessarily wrong. Here, these religious leaders, 
disputed with Jesus. And then Jesus, he wades through all the other fluff, and he comes down to the very matter in John chapter 5, verses 39 to 40. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and as they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Isn't that what happens when someone rejects Christ? That they might claim, hey, there's not enough evidence. Hey, uh, these, uh, the accounts of the Gospels, there are four, four different accounts, and that's proof that, uh, that they're lying. Uh, here, we think about all the excuses people make of, God, you, you haven't shown yourself to be true. We just don't really know. But the bottom line is, they refuse to come to Christ that they might have life. Where are you in all this? Are you one who is coming to Christ often? You realize coming to Christ is not a one-time thing that you did two years ago or 80 years ago. It's something we must do all the time. We must come to him, that he calls us to himself. He calls us to faith. He calls us to obedience. And we must leave behind our own sinful, hardened ways. And we must follow Jesus Christ. Here, as we think through this Gospel of John, this Gospel, uh, even in the reading of it, is completely different than the other three. The other three refer to as the synoptic synoptic Gospels, Matthew, uh, Mark, and Luke, uh, seem to be very similar, though they differ uh, significantly in length, uh, particularly Mark and Luke, the shortest and the longest. But here, John, there's something different about this Gospel. And here we see that uh, in this passage... Before and after it, we have Jesus dealing with various people. In John chapter 4, he was dealing with the Samaritan woman. And you notice that there was not a harshness in how he spoke to her. There was a kindness. There was a compassion in which he spoke. But yet, at the same time, he also waded through all the various things. He didn't get distracted by her her current debate arguments. He cut right to the chase. You don't have one husband. You've had five, and the one you're with is not your husband. He cut to the chase. So also with these uh, religious leaders. He spoke with a different tone with them. And here it's because they should have known uh, the one that they were disputing with, that this is not another prophet. This is the Son of God who has come in the flesh. And to dispute with him is necessarily to admit your own guilt. May you and I not be those who dispute with Jesus, the Son. So the truth that we see here is diligent study of the scriptures is meaningless unless you reach your own end and go to Christ for life. Diligent study of the scriptures is meaningless unless you reach your own end and go to Christ for life. We'll look at this in two points. First, the search that misses the mark. And second, the Christ who is life. So the first point, the search that misses the mark, in the first half of verse 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. Here, we think in the part earlier in John chapter 5, where Jesus had healed a paralyzed man at the pool of Bethesda. And he did it on the Sabbath day. Uh, It wasn't as if Jesus had no choice. He knew what would happen. He spoke to the paralyzed man. He was trying to get into the pool of Bethesda. It had something to do with uh, an angel coming and stirring up the waters, and the person who gets in at that time is healed. 
Uh, and Jesus didn't bother with any of that. He just simply said to the paralytic, get up, take up your bed and walk. And the big commotion, or rather the big scandal, was not that a man who had been there for however many years was healed. This paralyzed man was healed. It was the religious leaders were saying, hey, well, what are you doing moving your bed on the Sabbath? This is wrong. And hey, this man who healed me told me to do it. And there we have grounds for them to condemn Jesus. Hey, listen, you're a Sabbath breaker. You're commanding uh, these disciples of ours to be Sabbath breakers. And then they went even further. He was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Here in verses 31, chapter 5, verses 31 to 47, Jesus, his greater argument is that of witness. He's addressing the matter of witness about him. In verse 31, Jesus says that his personal witness of himself is not admissible. So there, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. So he's not saying that his testimony is, is not valid in the sense that he's not telling the truth. He's saying that normally when you know, your Proverbs talks about uh, let another commend you and not you yourself. Right? So you, you have to have someone else write you a recommendation. Right? So if you, if you want a job, you want to get into a certain college, you can't write your own recommendations. That's, that's all it's saying. It, it, would make, it would make no sense. No one would accept it. it. It's not admissible. It's not deemed true. So Jesus is, is admitting that. But he's saying he has others who testify for him. Verse 32, this is a reference to his father's witness. You think about Jesus' baptism. It must have had a different meaning than ours because he had no sin. Here we think about baptism as a sign of a remission of sins, sins being washed away. Yet at his baptism, it was the, the voice from heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Who else did God speak in that manner about but Jesus alone? Here we think also of the witness of John the baptizer, that John bore witness of the truth. When John 1, 29, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That this is John who, who admits, Hey, listen, I'm the forerunner. I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. And he admits, Hey, I'm not worthy even to untie his sandal of all things. So he's saying, Hey, I baptize with water for the remission of sins, for, for the forgiveness of sins. But he's saying, This man will baptize with fire. Jesus says to him in verse 35, you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light, meaning that uh, the people received John as a prophet. They saw him as a prophet, that there was even that big question that came up, that the Jews were asking Jesus, the religious leaders say, hey, uh, by what authority do you do these things? And Jesus comes back and says, hey, listen, I'll ask you a question first and you answer it and then I'll answer you. He says, John's baptism. Uh, he asked about that. And, uh, and the religious leaders were thinking, oh, wait a minute. If we said it's from heaven, then we're busted. Why didn't you believe it? But if we say it's from man, well, the people accept him as a prophet. So they say, we don't know. And, and here you, you see that the, the religious leaders were unwilling to oppose John. So, so they were willing to receive him in his light. We have also the mention of, of the corroborating signs. The corroborating signs uh, there in verse 
verse 36, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So these corroborating signs are the attesting miracles that Jesus did. So here, we don't have situations where, where someone uh, has these attesting miracles, and, and uh, here you have the apostles, they had attesting miracles, and then they were saying that, hey, we're preaching the gospel, we're not pointing to ourselves, we're pointing to Jesus Christ. God didn't give them these attesting miracles so that they could say, hey, uh, bow down to us. Didn't say that. The attesting miracles for Jesus is that here he was proclaiming himself as the Son of God. And why would God permit this unless they attest to who he is? Here we think about verse 39. Oftentimes people say that there is a a disagreement regarding what's being said. This is part of the difficulties of language, the limitations of language. There in verse 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. Other versions might say uh, it's an imperative. Search the scriptures, or you go search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It seems like the split is equal, uh, equally in two, meaning half... Half have one view, it's, it's an imperative, and half believe it's an indicative. In, in the original language of Greek, it's, it's the same. But I think the, the ESV has it correctly here. It's, it's indicative. You search the scriptures, meaning that you are searching the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But here, what Jesus is pointing out to them is that in their search, they've actually missed the elephant. They've missed everything. Because they've missed him. Unless your search and my search of the scriptures, our reading of the scriptures, our knowledge of the scriptures, unless it's exalting Christ, if it's, hum if it's not humbling us and pointing out our need for a savior in Jesus Christ, we've missed the entire point of the Old Testament. We think about the belief of the Jews. What God gave them and what they believed are two very different things. So what God gave them was not uh, do this and it will be the means by which you will save yourself. This is not what God gave them. God gave them the word. It's what they came up with that was different. We see that happen quite often. We see that happen in, in broader Christendom. Examples of Christian cults and cult leaders who, who convince everyone to, uh, to drink Oh, there's a saying now, drinking the Kool-Aid, sort of say. But it's, what is actually Kool-Aid? I think it was some other off-brand, not Kool-Aid. But the bottom, the bottom line is uh, you have the extremes of these Christian cults. That certainly was not what God gave us in his word, the Old and New Testaments. But people end up in strange places. So also, God gave the Jews the Old Testament. They ended up in a place other than what he wanted them to be. We see that so, so clearly in, in two examples. One is that of the rich young ruler in Matthew 19. He approaches Jesus, it seems like outwardly with some uh, show of humility, but uh, his entire question was wrong. What must I do to be saved? And Jesus mentions some of the commandments, and he comes back confidently saying, all those I have kept since I was a young man. And then Jesus says to him, oh, wait a minute, one thing you lack. Now here, 
People often think, well, Jesus was giving him a bona fide offer. If he sold everything and followed Jesus, then he would have eternal life. I don't think that was Jesus' point. Jesus was playing the game that the man was playing. The man was saying, hey, Jesus, the law justifies me. And Jesus was coming back saying, no, the law doesn't justify you. And I'm not going to bother to argue with you about all the other laws. I'm just going to point out this one. Sell all your riches. Give to the poor. Then come follow me. You'll have riches. He couldn't do it. And he walked away understanding, hey, listen, the law doesn't justify you. The law only condemns you. So also in the case of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And the focus is on the Pharisee. Here, Jesus said very clearly that the tax collector was one who beat his breast. And he looked to heaven and said, have mercy on me, a sinner. It was the, tax, it was the Pharisee who prayed. You could eliminate God from his prayer. And his prayer would still be freestanding in the sense that it was a prayer about himself. It was a prayer about his works. It was a prayer about how glad he's not like that other man. And here, this whole principle of holier than thou, that the summary of the Jewish leaders, at least, was that their religion was at least they weren't Gentiles, as in Gentile dogs. But here we ought to understand that our our God does not grade on a curve. Or perhaps you can say he does grade on a curve, and the curve is broken by Jesus because he is the perfect standard. He's the 100% that we all miss. The Apostle Paul, being a, an advanced Jew, he analyzed it perfectly, and he cut to the chase. Romans chapter 9, verses 30 to 32. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were by, based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. Here, this is describing the very principle about how Jesus was eating with tax collectors and prostitutes. And his statement was, hey, listen. I did not come to save the righteous. I came to save sinners. The doctor doesn't come for the, for the healthy. He comes for the sick. And it's these tax collectors and prostitutes who were able to acknowledge we are sinners. We're in need of a savior. And Jesus is that savior. It was the Jews who were saying, we have no need of him. We have the law. The law justifies us. This is the very thing that the apostle Paul came to realize. That he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. And he came to realize the law only condemned him. Here, what we come to realize is that the Jews, in their search, they completely missed Jesus Christ. They misunderstood the scriptures, plain and simple. All of the Old Testament pointed ahead to Christ who would come. The law points out your sin and mine. It points out our need for a savior. The law doesn't justify. After the fall, Adam and Eve fell. The law only condemns. The law shows us the need that we have for a Savior. They missed that part. Here, there are certain things that uh, did not end with these Jewish leaders. Certain pitfalls that continue even in the church today. We think about this 
uh, view of this intellectualism. Now, some of you might be thinking, wait a minute, Frank, you've got to be careful because uh, we, we don't answer uh, a study and knowledge by just this touchy-feely. Okay, I'll grant you that. But there's a difference between a diligent study and intellectualism. No one can claim that a diligent person who studies will eventually attain righteousness. No one can claim that. The Jews, these Jewish leaders, there's no question about it. They were all, uh, by our standards, they were all PhDs. And we, in comparison, are probably barely literate compared to their study. But this intellectualism could not bring them to God. It wasn't the Tower of Babel that would get them there. They looked down upon those who could barely read. This is why the apostles, Peter, James, and John, who were poorly educated fishermen, they were men who worked with their hands, they were blue-collar men who did not have the fine education that these Jewish rabbis did, and yet were told that they spoke with such conviction because they had been with Jesus. Here we think also of an elitism, that these Jewish leaders manifested this elitism. You think about the, the man who was born blind and was healed. They, that this man eventually said to him, Hey, you've asked me how he healed my blindness. I told you. He spit, he made dirt, he rubbed it on my eyes, and now I see. And they kept asking him. And, and then they said, Hey, we know this, this man is a sinner. And, and the blind man, or the man once blind who was healed, says, Hey, if he's a sinner, right, why is it that God listens to him and he heals the blind? And then they said to him, how dare you lecture us? How dare you try to teach us? You are entirely in sin. This was a sense of elitism. That we ought to understand that the Lord calls us to study his word. We ought to delight in it. We ought to meditate on it. Those are all good. But we ought to understand that that, that is not our basis of righteousness. You think about, hey... What are some of the examples of this failure? All we need to do is look back at American history, the history of the Presbyterian Church, and we see that that intellectualism led to great failure. These scholars at the seminaries were constantly thirsting, lusting for the respect of secular scholars. And that is what they got. They got the respect because they abandoned everything. They abandoned the faith. They're very educated. They have all kinds of, of advanced degrees, but they've forgotten Christ. And that's exactly what happened with these Jewish leaders. So here, this is the first point, the search that misses the mark. We have also the second point, that Christ, who is life. In the second half of 39, the 40. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So the first part, second half of verse 39, it is they that bear witness about me. It is they, meaning the scriptures, all the scriptures bear witness about Christ. Even going back to Genesis 3.15, right after the fall, that the first mention of the good news of the gospel, Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will bruise your head, and you will bruise his heel. The Apostle Paul, at the end of the 
the epistle to the Romans said, God will soon crush Satan under your feet. That this is the very idea that the seed of the woman would deal a death blow to the seed of the serpent. In God's call to Abraham, he says to Abraham, go sacrifice your son. Genesis 22. Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. You think about some of the statements made there in verse 18. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. Galatians makes it very clear, it quotes that very passage. And it didn't say, and to seeds, all all the uh, nations will be blessed by your seeds. He says, all the nations will be blessed by your one singular seed. That is Jesus Christ who has come. He is the, uh, you think about the figure of the ram whose horns were caught in the thicket. Hey, Isaac asked the questions. We have the wood, we have the fire, where's the sacrifice? (laughs) And Abraham, as the old man, didn't say, hey, I I better bind you up because you're it. He just, hey, God will provide. No worries. God will provide. Right? He didn't want the sacrifice to run away. And sure enough, he did. This is symbolized in, in the ram, horn caught in the thickets. God provided the sacrifice. That is his son, Jesus Christ. Deuteronomy 18. Moses said that that God will raise up a prophet from among their brothers. And God will put words in his mouth. And he will speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of, of him. Now, how does that go for these religious leaders? who did not receive Jesus and disputed with him. You think about how for these Jews, not the religious leaders, some of them, we think about Nicodemus, right? Uh, Joseph of Arimathea. But here, Philip and Nathaniel, John 1.45, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. But there were Jews who were awaiting him. They were saying, all of our religion points ahead to this Jesus. He is exactly the one that we're waiting for. Yet we're told that for the Jews, Jesus was this stumbling block. Romans 9.33, as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. We think about how the Jews, having the law, Our elder read earlier in Romans chapter 2 how they look down on other people. They they consider themselves teachers of the law. Yet here, they did not understand the law. They saw themselves as they were great and mighty because they were the ones who received the law. They were recipients. Moses was the one who delivered it to them. They looked at Gentiles and said, all of you are dust, dogs. Yet see here we see, is it the same for some of us? That we look down at others, at the way they live their lives, uh, the shoddy theology that they have. Do we become these same types of uh, Jewish leaders? Do we become the same self-righteous leaders that Jesus, our Lord, criticized? Here we think about how we have a, ought to have a heart for the lost. That there are to be prayer that we ought to be praying for those who are lost. That we ought to realize 
It was not long ago when we walked in their shoes. And if it was not the Lord, we read earlier in Deuteronomy chapter 30, that he is the one who circumcises the heart. Who could do heart circumcision? The answer is no one. No one circumcises their own hearts. No one circumcises the hearts of another. But the only way that you will love God, that you will honor him and submit to Jesus Christ, is that heart surgery, that heart circumcision. Here, in verse 40, you have basically the heart of it all. Verse 40. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. You realize, this rebuke that Jesus gives, it's not only to these religious leaders. It's to people in the present. It's to people in the future. Are you refusing to come to Christ that you may have life? Here we must realize that this is a command for all of us. It's a command that we might go to Christ for life. The outcome of not coming to Christ is not having life. Another way to say that is not having life is death. This was the consequence of the fall. The day of the, you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. That is what Adam and Eve and their descendants had outside of Christ. Here, Jesus gives some incriminating evidence about how these Jews lacked life. In verse 41, Jesus says, I do not receive glory from people. Some commentators claim that uh, Jesus healed this man uh, at the pool of Bethesda, and perhaps the Jews were, were thinking here, hey, should we not have given him such a hard time about healing on the Sabbath and just, and just said, hey, you're right, you're awesome, uh, you healed this guy, we ought to give you that credit. Hey, he was here saying that he does not receive glory from people. But his contrast, you see a few verses ahead, there in verse 44, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Here, we ought to acknowledge that following Christ comes with all kinds of blessings. But we all must acknowledge following Christ also comes with all kinds of rejections. That for those who love Jesus Christ, for those who love the Lord, we ought to acknowledge that whatever losses that come with being with Christ, being united to him by faith, those things are all minor. They must be minor for you and for me. Think about the life of Joseph, uh, not Joseph, uh, Jacob. Here Jacob, he made a bad deal with a bad dealer, Laban. He says, I'll work for you seven years for your daughter, Rachel. That this... Uh, untrustworthy man, uh, a dishonest man, uh, swindled him and gave him his elder daughter, Leah. So he says, okay, another seven years. And the scriptures tell us that seven years, 14 years, that was nothing for Jacob. 14 years to work for the love of my life, no big deal, right? It passed like a few days to him. 
Does this describe your service of our Lord Jesus Christ? Being the love of your life, that any sacrifice you're called to make, do we think about it in the same way? Ah, that is but nothing. Those were small sacrifices that I might know the fellowship of the suffering of Jesus Christ, that I might be united to him, that I might enjoy his fellowship. May we have that same thought, even as Jacob did, that these are small sacrifices, small losses, because to gain Christ from you means to gain everything. Here, uh, we think also about how Jesus made it so clear there in verse 42. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. He's saying, you study the scriptures. You know everything about God. You can name all his characteristics. You can quote all the scriptures. You can quote all the teachings of the rabbis. But he's saying, you have no love of God. Here, we think about how it's very easy to focus on, oh, these are the confessions of the church. Hey, these are the practices of the church. This is how our church is better than that church. Our denomination is better than that denomination. Where is the case? But if we're so focused on those things, do we end up losing sight of loving our God? Here I think about the, uh, the parable of the prodigal son. And you wonder sometimes, who was the prodigal? We tend to think it was the younger son who went off and, and squandered his father's, his, his share of the inheritance with riotous living. And at some point, he was looking at the pods that the pigs were eating. This would have been a grave insult for a, a young Jewish man. And he, he said, I wish I could eat those because I'm starving. And then, then you look at who was actually there when Jesus was telling the story. The prodigal, I think, that is the one who was lost, is actually the older son. You listen to his language. All these years I have served you. Was there any love? Was there any joy in that, that older son's service to the father? There wasn't. Here, this is a reminder to you and to me that if we're loving God, we should have joy in serving him. It should not be a chore because his commandments are not burdensome. When he asks of us, when Jesus summons us, hey, servant, or rather, son, daughter, it is time for you to change. And then you and I should be saying, change? Yes. How must I do so? Speak to me, Lord, so that I may be willingly giving up the little things in this life, whatever creature comforts, whatever habits, we must be willing to say, Jesus commands my change. We must be more like him each day. It means these things I need to modify. It's going to disrupt things. You, th you think about how when we come to the scriptures, we come to the commandments of God. This is how men reason. This is how men think. Wait a minute. If that's true, then this needs to change in my life. Yes, you better believe it. Those are the ramifications. Those are the implications of what it means to follow Christ. It is a grave rebuke that Jesus says, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God within you. May we not be those who are identified by Jesus as not having 
love for God within us. Here, we need to stop and think what Christ freely offers to sinners. The offer is actually right there in verse 40. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. What is Christ actually offering, even to these religious leaders? He's saying that he freely offers eternal life to sinners. When we think about Christ's offer to us, we see that in Isaiah 55, verse 3. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Realize that Jesus is the one who is, who is offering himself. That this is the offer of life, that your soul may live. Because Jesus is saying, outside of him, your soul is dead. It's not dying, your soul is dead. And that we must embrace the promise of Jesus Christ, that he alone is our righteousness, he alone is our hope, he alone is our deliverance. That he is the one who saves us from the bondage to sin and to death. Otherwise, there will only be continued bondage. Jesus is the one who breaks those shackles of sin. He is the one who frees us that we might have life. Are you trusting in him? You realize that trusting in him must mean that there is love for him, love for the Father. Here, I ask about a personal examination of your own search, your own study. Are you learning merely for the sake of your intellectual growth? Uh, do, do you have to walk through a door that's shaped like a mushroom? Here, normally people walk through a door shaped like a rectangle. But if, if we have to have a door that's shaped like a mushroom because our heads are so big it can't get through the door, then we're searching for God for all the wrong reasons, not to be big-headed. Is your desire to know the scriptures and right doctrine merely to be better than other people, to look down upon them? Because here we see what Jesus does. He rebukes these religious leaders who have done that exact thing and that attitude and those ways, all summarized into this one phrase, self-righteousness. It didn't die then with those religious leaders. It lives on in Christ's church now. Knowledge puffs up. But your greater knowledge of scripture and of doctrine, it must be humbling you. Because if not, it's puffing you up. Yes, you're right. God commands that we love him with all your mind. But he also said that you must love him with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength as well. There must be a balance in our lives. Here the Jewish leaders were hardened to the truth. The truth was actually right in front of them. The truth is Jesus Christ. They turned a blind eye and a hardened heart to every beckoning call from God because they claimed there wasn't enough evidence. That Jesus and his miracles, his teachings, they rejected all of it. Do you find yourself in a similar place, surrounded on every side by the same answer, by God providing all the evidences, but are you unwilling to come to Christ for life? Sometimes it's obvious 
it will be obvious to everyone around you but you. What is your motivation? Here, we have identified in God's word, Jesus rebuking the religious leaders that they seek glory from men, meaning the praise of men, but they don't seek the approval of God who is in heaven. Is this true about you and me? Do we do things to obtain the favor of men? Do we do things and then post about it on on social media and whatnot? Are we okay if it's only God who knows and nobody else? I should remind you that if you and I are seeking the approval of God, we must acknowledge that in almost every circumstance, obtaining God's approval means being rejected, despised, and reviled by men. That is what goes with it. Here, Jesus saw in the religious leaders of his time the lack of love for God from the heart. If you love God, then you must also obey his commandments. And it is not only those commandments with which you agree. It involves those with which you disagree. Loving God requires that we submit to him in your heart. Not just outwardly in the letter, but it requires that you submit to him in the heart. It's not only the letter of the law, it's the spirit of the law. Are you dealing with great issues in life? The bondage to sin. You must realize that our Lord Jesus is the one who tells you to come. That he is the one who sets us free. He is the one who breaks those shackles. He shatters them. He sets you free. He gives you life. He gives you true freedom. The world looks at Jesus and says, hey, we're not going to be bound by all those rules. The truth, because you understand, the world always spins a lie regarding the truth. This is what Satan does. He takes the truth and he spins it as a lie. No, it's not Jesus who binds you with all those rules. It's actually the rules that lead you to true freedom. It's disobedience to those commandments that are the pitfalls, that those are the bondage. It is Jesus who sets you free. He gives you true freedom in him. We think about the signs of death mentioned in this passage. A loveless Christianity. This is a warning to all of us. There's an eagerness on our part to condemn others, to mock them. But there's no desire to see life in them, to pray for them, to speak of the good news of Jesus Christ to them, and to bear their reproach. There is then there a loveless Christianity. There must be for us an anticipation of hope. But with death, there is only uh, pessimism. There ought to be hope in us about what God is doing in you, around you, and in those who are around you. The sign of death is an unwillingness to change. Here, death is not seeing the need for change for yourself. Why would I do that? Instead, we should be saying, Lord, show me the way that I may follow. No sacrifice is too great. God's word is addressing everyone else but me. It must address me first. It's holding to the letter which kills, but the spirit that gives life. These are all the signs of death. 
we see also the signs of life. And his commandments are not burdensome. There is joy in serving our Lord Jesus Christ. There is joy in sacrificing, going the extra mile. It's, it's like, um, who was it? It was um, Rebecca. Abraham's servant said, may it be the one who offers to do the extra. When he asks, let me have some water. And she says, I will give you water and I will water your camels too. At the extra mile, this is what God desires to see in us. That we would think not only of what others ask, but we would desire to go the extra mile in serving our Lord Jesus. Signs of life are eyes to see the Holy Spirit at work. Opportunities around you. That we would be peacemakers. That we would desire that others would come to know this good news of Jesus Christ. Remember that having more people faithful in serving God does not mean you have less of God. It actually means you have more of Him. Faith that believes God's promises. Trusting in Christ means that you trust that He indeed is the one who forgives your sins. Your sins paid for at the cross. Signs of life are that there are no more excuses, no more blame shifting. Conviction that leads to change and growth in your life. Here, that you have the love of God in your life is evidence in that you have a love for others. There's a concern for them. It's not this <coughs> me first all the time. It's being able to see the needs of others and their desires and their lack. May we have that same compassion even as Jesus showed to others. Here, the sign of life is that you are coming to Christ. You are going to Christ who is life, who gives life, that we might desire Him, that we might trust in Him, that we might worship Him, that we might humble ourselves before Him and give Him glory. That is the sign of true life, that we go to our God. Our Lord God, we thank You, Father, for You are the one...